again, and thank you for being here tonight. I'm excited for us to share together in the Word of God tonight. If you have your Bibles, you can mark the book of Philippians. Made sure to tell you early tonight. Mark the book of Philippians because tonight we are talking about the church at Philippi that we find a lot of information about in the letter Paul wrote called Philippians. But before we get to the book of Philippians, we're going to start in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, that's where we're going to sort of use as our launch pad for this evening's lesson. And again, as we're sort of by way of reminder, thinking about the tipping point that we're in the midst of this battle being pulled this way and that, which side are we going to give into? Are we going to give into the side that's pulling at us, trying to trip us and bring us down? That is Satan's side. Or are we going to give into the side that is softly and tenderly pleading with us and inviting us warmly to come into his family? As we've been discussing this concept, this sort of our overarching theme for this week, we've been looking during the weeknight so far of different New Testament churches and the problems they faced and the biblical solutions that were given to them and how they were able to work with those problems and, and the lessons we can get from those. And lest we think, well, that's the first century, that was some 2,000 years ago, it's a lot different today. Those are men and women just like me and you that were struggling in the real world, trying to make it in the real world, and also trying to live as a spiritual person in Christ and get those two lives to blend together so that they could be pleasing to Christ in every way. The letter to the Philippians is one of my favorites. I, I think I said that about Ephesians too. Uh, but I think I'm safe to say that, you know, this one or that one's my favorite. All of them could be my favorite. You know, you can't go wrong picking a book out of the Bible to be your favorite. But Philippians, I really, really love. Philippians is one of, one of the books that we look at that is almost exclusively positive things with just a few little things thrown in there. And we see a lot of personal things about Paul in the letter to the Philippians. It seems as though maybe this is one of the churches that he had the closest personal relationship with. It only takes up about four pages in a modern translation. At least it's only four chapters. And it might be easy to pass through if you're just trying to flip through the pages of your Bible. Maybe you had to stop and, uh, and count the pages, make sure you're in the right place. But it's a very attractive letter. And it's one that we like to read and we like to study over books like maybe, I don't know, Jeremiah or, or Revelation that either have a, a, me- a message that's really unpleasant to read, or one that's challenging to understand at times. The letter to the Philippians, that's simple, and it's straightforward, and it's motivating, and it's encouraging, and you close that letter with a smile on your face. We see a positive picture of Paul. Paul, who is a prisoner at this point as he writes to them, who is recounting the experience that he had with them, as we're going to look here in Acts chapter 16. And what I want us to point out tonight as we look through the letter to the Philippians and the beginning of that church there is the, the message that he is teaching them and is one that we have touched on all week. We talked about it with the Corinthian church, that they were in need of unity because of the divisions they were facing. We talked about it with the Ephesians because they were different classes of people who were coming together in a Gentile community and learning how to function together. And certainly that is the case with the Philippians. And so we've titled our lesson tonight, All Classes Meet in Christ. This is not a lesson about Bible class and how many or whether we need to have them, as some have pointed out to me tonight. And I thought that was pretty amusing. I want to share that with you. But it's a lesson about the different kinds of people that can all find identity in Christ. And that all can find equal identity in Christ and useful identity in Christ 
in a world where we struggle to find identity. That's a big part of the appeal to postmodernism that we talked about on Sunday. People want to feel valued. They want to feel like there's somebody special. And the way they go about doing that is to say, well, if I have a unique take on truth, maybe then people will look at me as an, an individual that stands apart. And the word has been spread for years and years. Be yourself. Don't be like everybody else. You know, dare to be different like everybody else is being different. But in Christ, we have identity. We have identity collectively as the church, as a local body. We have identity collectively as the Lord's people, as the church universal all around the world. And each one of us, you and me, we're all known by our Father. And we're known intimately and personally. No matter what our background is, what we've overcome to get to where we are today, or what we're still dealing with on our pathway with Christ. God cares for you and he knows who you are. And I want to point that message out as we look together tonight about Philippi and the things they were dealing with. Okay, so we're in Acts chapter 16. And I want us to talk about how the church at Philippi came about. I realized a little too late that we've really been going in reverse order through the book of Acts. Have you noticed that? We've looked at chapter 18 and then chapter 17. And here we are in chapter 16. Maybe I should have thought that out a little bit better. But this is the way I wanted to preach the lessons this week. So, well, it's a little too late and tomorrow we're not doing another church. We're going to change gears a little bit more to finish it out. So it is what it is. Look at chapter 16, verse 9. Acts chapter 16 and verse 9. We mentioned this before because we've already talked about chapter 17 when he's in Thessalonica, as we just said. Uh, But this is the part where Paul had previously been forbidden to go westward, or, or rather forbidden to go east into Asia, and he is called rather to go into Macedonia which would be modern-day Greece. Look at verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So when we sing the song, send the light, and we sing the part, we have heard the Macedonian call today. This is the verse that we get that part of the song from. And what that means in the song, just because it's always helpful to understand our songs, that means we've heard the call to go and teach the lost wherever they need to be taught. Okay, whether it's abroad or whether it's nearby or down the road. And so Paul gets that message and a vision. We need your help, Paul. Please come and talk to us. And that's what we had talked about. Forbidden by the Spirit. And so he's called to go uh, into Philippi. This would have been the first time that the gospel is preached in what we know of as Europe. Okay, so we're in the Middle East. That's where it started. And we know that it goes into Asia, which would have been the region north of, of Israel in the the region of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And we know that it goes into Africa because it goes into Egypt, and it goes down that direction, and now we've got it going into Europe. So before you think that the message of Christianity, when, when Jesus says, go to the ends of the earth, that it really was sort of a localized thing, we're hitting three continents already, okay? And so it's a really a huge spread that's going on here. What do we know about Philippi? I don't have a map, but we we know that it's in Macedonia, at least. And it's a leading city in Macedonia, one of the the premier cities. And it would have been towards the north of that region. As we mentioned, this is modern Greece, and this would have been a Roman colony. Most of the people there would have been Roman citizens. And it seems to be a place where soldiers who had been in active service for a long time and finally were coming out of active duty, they would have gone to, to rest and retire. So we might think of it as sort of the Florida for Roman soldiers. They go to retire there. And it's a nice place and, and an enjoyable city to be in. Paul emphasizes in the letter to the Philippians, 
just how Roman it was. So uh, don't lose Acts 16 just yet. We'll be right back. But in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 13, just notice the way he phrases things. He says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Well, what's he talking about there? The whole imperium guard. Maybe your version says praetorium. We're talking about Roman soldiers. All the Roman soldiers know about my imprisonment and why I'm here. There's some some Roman people there that he's spending time with. And at the end of the letter, verse 22, it says, All the saints greet you, and I think this is really neat, especially those of Caesar's household. What do we know about Caesar? Well, he was Roman. And so we've got saints that were working in his household that were, were Christians at that time. But Paul says from the beginning of the letter to the end, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of Romans around me. This is the situation that I am in. Now, he even points out uh, as, well, I should have put these already up there. But he's talking about the, knowing that the whole palace guard knows that he is there for Christ. And we've already looked at that. And so the beginning of the church takes place over in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, about verse 13, 11 and 12, give us his course to Philippi. And so he says they go from Troas to Samothrace and down to Neapolis and there to Philippi, as we mentioned, a leading city in Macedonia, a Roman colony. And notice what he does here. So we get verses 13 through 15 and we meet someone by the name of Lydia. First of all, what's Paul's common practice when he gets to a new place? He goes to the synagogue. To meet with Jews who are God-fearing people because he is interested in saving Jews. And after he teaches the Jews, he also spends time teaching the Gentiles. In some cases, they're not interested in him and they kick him out. And he goes on and teaches the Gentiles. Well, what we see here is on the Sabbath day, when he would have normally been at the synagogue, it seems like there wasn't one around. But he says, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we suppose there was a place of prayer we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So maybe there weren't enough Jewish males present to have a synagogue. Uh, but we, either way, we get the idea that there was not much of a Jewish presence. This is sort of unique because just about everywhere else he's gone, there's been a synagogue. But here, it just doesn't seem like there's many Jews. But what we do see here is that there are people who are, who are God-fearing people who are coming together to pray. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened, opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying, was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so what we see about Lydia is that she was a seller of purple, indicating that she was probably wealthy. The fact that she was from Thyatira, but was in Philippi means that she might have been on a business trip of some sort, or maybe she was wealthy enough to move to a place where commerce was a little better. But we do know from history that purple was was the, the fabric, the color of royalty. It was an expensive thing to purchase. So she probably was doing well, we can assume. She was a worshiper of God, verse 14 tells us. So literally a God-fearing person. She knew about God. She might not have known about Christ to this point because he teaches about that. But she's someone who is interested in serving God. She's not pagan from what we're seeing here. And so she believes in her household and herself. They're baptized. She offers to be hospitable. And again, later at the end of the chapter, she is visited by Paul before he leaves. 
This would have been his first contact. This would have been someone who is very special to Paul. And so he makes it a point to go back and see her before we leaves. But things aren't all good in Philippi. And later on, Paul mentions there were conflicts in Philippi. There were some problems that happened there. But look at verse 16. We remember the story well. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And we won't read the rest of this account, but we know that the people who were her owners saw their money flying out the window and they didn't like that. And so they had Paul arrested. They drug him in the marketplace before the rulers. They said they're Jews. They're here disturbing our city. This wasn't even the same reason that other people had called him a, a disturbance. But they're they're practicing these customs, you know, whatever we have to do to get him in trouble because he's cost us a lot of money. The whole join the whole crowd joins in. And finally, they are thrown into prison, which gets us to arguably the most familiar part of Acts chapter 16. Which is the jailer. And this takes us through the rest of the chapter. Now, again, we won't spend the time to read this entire chapter tonight because there's a lot of things that I want us to talk about. But what we see here is that with the jailer, he is a good Roman soldier. And he is someone who fears for his life after this earthquake when all of the gates and the chains were open. Look in verse 27, though. He says, when the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I believe what happened here is he saw the integrity of these men, people who had been wrongfully accused, wrongfully imprisoned and flogged later. We see that's a huge problem since Paul was a Roman citizen himself. Yet after this wrongful treatment, even when the doors are miraculously open for them, they did not take that as a means and a reason to escape. And I think he saw their integrity and whatever conversation went on there, it led this man to ask them, what must I do to be saved? Well, we see from the rest of the chapter that he is taught, he believes, he is baptized in his household as well. What do we see here, though, about the first three uh, situations in Philippi? Lydia taught at the river. The conflict that happened where Paul was wrongfully imprisoned and the instance with the jailer. Well, I want us to look at some differences in these Christians, differences in these Christians. The first thing we see about them is we've got a man and a woman who are the first identified converts in Philippi. Why is this important? Is this just an insignificant fact of history? Well, you know, of course, it was Lydia and there was this jailer. I think there is some importance as to why Paul or why Luke records that. After all, he's writing to most noble Theophilus, right, who would have been a Roman. And I think what he's pointing out here is what Paul goes on later to say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Luke is pointing out and what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us is that it doesn't matter what you are. 
when you come to Christ and believe, you become a child of God. Another difference that we learn about these people is that one was probably wealthy while the other was a working class individual. I would bet that a Roman soldier who was the one stuck guarding jail cells through the night was probably not a super high ranking individual. But he was working and he was doing his best and he took his job seriously. But we see someone who is wealthy and someone who is working class, yet there is no distinction in the amount of credit they are given for their conversion. It simply says they learned of Christ. They had their sins washed away. And Paul reminds us there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. We might argue that we've got one person that's churched because Lydia was praying on the Sabbath day and she was a God fearing individual. And we've got someone who was unchurched, who would have been a Roman pagan individual. And, I, you know, if you have to guess about the Roman society, even though they were a religious group, they had their gods and goddesses. It would be hard to argue that they were very religious in their activities. But what we see is the gospel is for all, regardless of background, regardless of differences. Let's make some applications about that. And I want to make the point here as we look through uh, the people that we've been talking about and the differences that they had. That all classes meet in Christ. All classes meet in Christ. So who can the gospel reach? That's a question that I want us to answer at this point. Who does the gospel appeal to? Who is it meant for? Who is someone who is a prime prospect to receive the gospel? Is it someone who is a young person that's got long hair, that's got maybe abbreviated clothes, and maybe he's got some liberal political views that we don't agree with? Is that a, is that a prospect for Christianity? Absolutely it is a wonderful prospect for Christianity. What about what about your foul mouth redneck coworker or neighbor? We can say that in Murfreesboro because we're close enough to Shelbyville that we all know someone like that. We know people who are foul mouth, who are a little backwoods and they're a little different from us and they do things a little differently. And maybe they talk about things that we can't even imagine. And they're rough around the edges. Is that person a candidate for Christianity? Acts chapter 16 leads me to believe that, yes, I think they would be. Maybe that jailer was the Roman equivalent of that. I don't know. What about an immigrant from the other side of the world who we don't know what we have in common? Maybe there's communication barriers. Are they a prospect? What about someone who's a recovering addict from whatever drug they have been hooked on or whatever problem they have become obsessed with and they're recovering and they're fresh out of jail? We've known people like that here at Northfield who have come to Christ, even in their imprisonments, and who have been faithful. Absolutely. Prospect for Christianity, yes. What about a college graduate who might be a little different from us? We've been working our whole life, and this guy fresh out of college is making six figures a year. That's a, that's a prime suspect who, who should be ready to receive Christ. We should talk to him or her. What about your denominational friend who is more and more dissatisfied with the inconsistencies or the problems with Scripture that they are seeing that are taking place in their church. You know people like that, don't you? People that are devout members and they really want to serve God, but maybe they're Baptist or maybe they're Methodist or Catholic. But maybe they're becoming a little bit more dissatisfied. Those are people that can be reached by the gospel. 
What about a cashier at Walmart who's a single mom? She's got two kids. She's barely making ends meet. Is that someone you want to talk to and invite to church? Is that someone that the gospel is meant to save? Absolutely. What do we learn? What do we think about this? That all classes, that is whether you're male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all are one in Christ. Every single one of those people have become Christians. There are people like that. That's their past. That's their background. That's who they were. But now who are, who are they? Well, that background sort of fades away when you come to Christ. It's not that important. It's who we are today. There are people here tonight that fall into some of these categories that thanks be to God, they have had their sins washed away just like I have and just like you have. That's a major theme of the letter to the Philippian church. That's a major problem that is dealt with time and time again throughout the New Testament. We could argue that the problem of, it seems to be of circumcision and Christianity and how those two meet, that seems to be one of the biggest problems that's spelled out in the New Testament. But really what I think it comes down to is I don't want those people to be Christians. I've been a Christian longer and I don't think that person should be a Christian. Or at least maybe I'm not going to say that, but I'm not going to work too hard to reach them. And I don't want a lot of people here that are different from me. Because after all, things are really comfortable and they're a little easier when we're all sort of the same. The Lord's church was different. It was diverse in the first century. It ought to be today. It ought to be today if we're doing our part, if we're working. Let's talk a little bit about the circumstances by which this letter was written. (coughs) Excuse me. Paul was writing from prison, wasn't he? Look in Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23 and verse 35. And here in a second, we're going to go to Philippians. Acts 23 and verse 35. Paul is, has been arrested and he has told his story and he's told his story. And here we are. And he is in the cust, uh, in custody of the, the Roman soldiers. He says here, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. Remember that he had gone ahead of them and he hasn't quite gotten there yet. And then later he goes on to Caesarea, but he's in prison. Now, back in the letter to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter one and verse 18, Paul says here, what then only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. He's a prisoner, both metaphorically for Christ, but also literally in chains for Christ. And he says that whatever's going on, I'm rejoicing. He's able to rejoice as a cheerful prisoner. The reason he was able to rejoice, though, was not because he was in prison, but it's like we talked about last night. It's because of the hope that he had. Look in verse 19. And I wish that we had the mindset of Paul. He said, in that I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice. Verse 19, he says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always in Christ, or Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. What a mindset. What a a statement to be able to make with full confidence. He said, you know, I'd love to just go on out of this life and be with Christ. That'd be great. But you know, if I did that, 
There's a whole lot of people I wouldn't be able to teach. There's a whole lot of work that I wouldn't be able to get done. It's sort of like when you're at work and, and things start to pile up on your desk and you say, should I go home or should I finish up all this work? It'd really be nice to go home, but boy, I got a lot of work I got to get done. Which one am I going to choose? This is Paul's job. This is his life. This is who he is. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. What a mindset. He said, if I died, I'd be with Christ. That's wonderful. But if I was freed, I'd continue working. That's good too. I don't know which one to pick. He also says that his goal is always reaching ahead. This again is prisoner Paul in chains. Yet his attitude is this. Look in chapter 3, verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. There are so many action words throughout chapter 3 where he's saying, I'm looking for the surpassing worth. And he says, by any means possible, I'm going to press on. I'm going to strain forward, press on. I'm going to hold true and I'm going to stand firm. All of these things says Paul's got energy and he's putting it all into Christ. That's a mindset that we ought to, to mimic. If we could imitate this when we're not in prison, to have a mindset that says, I'm going to work and I'm going to strain ahead and I'm going to keep on trying no matter what's thrown at me. He also teaches that he's learned contentment. In chapter 4, verse 11, he talked about how the Philippian brethren had been concerned, but they didn't have opportunity. And in verse 11, he says, now, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every situation. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's interesting that he, he says twice in these two verses that he has learned how to be content. He's learned the secret of facing not having enough and having more than enough. That means he didn't just wake up one day and say, well, I, I'm just going to be content. He had to work at it. He had to learn how to do that. Of course, he reveals it in Christ, or in chapter, in verse 13, that it's through Christ who, who gives him his strength. What we see from verses like verse 13 of this chapter and from verse 21 of chapter 1 is his entire life, every aspect of Paul's mind, his emotions, and his physical actions, the words that he spoke, it was all wrapped up in Christ. He said it like this in Galatians 2 and verse 20. We're not going to sing the song. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. So there's the picture. Christ is on the cross and Paul's right there with him. And he says, but it's not I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And he says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I've been crucified, but I'm alive because I've crucified myself. I put my own wants and wishes to death because I only want to demonstrate the risen Savior living in me. That's why Paul could be cheerful. That's why Paul could write. That's why he could work with, his, with the people who were imprisoning him. And he could reach out to people even in the household of Caesar. The letter to the Philippians really writes like a love letter, doesn't it? Because of the way that he feels about them. If we want to put a date on this, this is about 61 about 61 AD, and this would have been about 10 years after he had last seen them. The church was established in Acts 16 with Lydia, with the jailer and their families and others. And about 10 years later, when he is imprisoned, beginning in Jerusalem and making his way up eventually to Rome, that's when he writes that, about 61. And so what do we see about him? 
we see someone who has a great love and affection. Look in chapter four, verse one. He says, therefore, my beloved or my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And he is encouraging them for their love for each other to increase. He says, I've got love for you. I am standing for you and I long to see you. And he says, I want you to see that with each other. Look in chapter one, verse nine. He's offering up this prayer and and telling them what he prays for in verse nine. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He says, I want your love for one another and for God to continue to grow and to grow your love for the truth and applying wisdom to your life. I want that to continue to grow and to grow. And so much of this letter is just admonition in words of encouragement. Here's what you need to do to keep on moving to these new Christians. These people, they needed help. They needed warnings about the dangers that they faced. And they needed the, to, to be understanding the dangers that they ran of infidelity and sinfulness, even when they were enthusiastic about their new faith. Sometimes I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like one of the reasons we hesitate to try to teach that rough crowd about Christ and invite them to church is because if we walk in here with someone who doesn't look everybody else and everybody can tell they're a little rough around the edges Well, maybe people will feel like, I don't know if I want them in the church here. Now, we don't say that out loud most of the time, but we might think it. We might have a bias against them. Or maybe we think if we convert these people, boy, that just really sets us up for a whole lot of work. Because we're going to have to teach them. They've never read the Bible before. We're going to have to teach them everything from the ground up. And we're going to have to teach them. They're going to have to stop doing a whole lot of things. And I just don't know if I want to put somebody through that. And after we teach them and after we work with them... You know, for the next several years, they're still going to keep on sinning and doing those same things. Because some old habits are hard to break. And I just don't know if I want to put all that work in. We don't want to, we don't want to, uh, to defile the Lord's church with people that are just going to sin like that. Nobody's ever said those words out loud, except for probably a preacher that's trying to make a point. But have we ever had those thoughts? Please don't raise your hand and please don't nod your head. But I can tell you secretly, yeah, yeah, I've thought things along those lines before. Tell you my experience in Lafayette, Georgia, uh, it's a very low income place. And a lot of the people that were interested in having Bible studies, they just wanted somebody to talk to. They were lonely, they were poor, they were handicapped, they didn't have anybody. They just wanted somebody. You know how easy it is to say, oh man, pulling up to a house, you're like, I'm going to fall through the floor when I walk in their living room. I just don't know if I, I I don't know if I'll be able to breathe. I can see the cigarette smoke coming out the door. It's hard sometimes to remember these people need Jesus just like I do. We've got to see the people out in the world just like that. And Paul thought, you know, people in Philippi, they need that reminder too. They need to remember that, hey, you're a Roman jailer, but you know what? You've been saved by the blood of Christ and all your Roman jailer friends can be too, even how rough they may be. And Lydia, don't think that you're too good to be a Christian because as good as you may be, you still need Christ. You still need his blood to save you. We need to be aware of the admonitions we need. 
Even in this love letter that he writes to Philippians, he still gives them ways to grow, ways that we need to grow as well. What are the admonitions that he gives them? We've talked about some admonitions he gave. What are they? Well, he talks about selfishness. He talks about the arguing that they had going on. And this would be a great deficiency in the church, right? He says, okay, if there's selfishness and if there's this quarreling going on, there's a root problem that we've got to address. See chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, beginning of verse 3. I know we've mentioned this a lot of times. We read it last night. He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Now, we read this as 21st century Christians here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And we say, okay, the people here at this church, I need to, I need to consider how I can put them as more significant than myself. Let's go back to Philippi, ancient Philippi, first century, about 61 AD. Paul is writing to people who are from vastly different cultural backgrounds, with vastly different religious backgrounds. And he's saying, you all need to learn how to see things the same way. And you all need to learn how to stop competing with one another out of conceit and rivalry. And you all need to learn how to humble yourself Romans were not known for humbling themselves. You need to learn how to humble yourself and put those other people above yourself. You know what? Frankly, Jews weren't known for humbling themselves either. And they needed to learn how to put these lowly Gentiles as more important than themselves and to look out for the interest of others. We need to we need to pay attention to those warnings as well. They are still applicable today. We go back a verse, though, and we see what had been corrupting the church. Look at verse 2. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so what had happened? Well, this quarreling that they had had caused them or had originated because they weren't thinking the same way. They weren't having the same love for one another. And they weren't working the same direction. They weren't in full accord. He said, you got to get it together. You got to get on the same page like we talked about last night. You got to get tuned up to the head so you can all be working the same way. Selfishness, quarreling, that is not something that should be in the Lord's church. And we mentioned this before, Euodia and Syntyche. He said, I urge them in the Lord. They got to work that out. They got to fix that problem. Not only did they face selfishness, though, and they face a lack of putting others first and the fighting that came from that. But he says, if you want to fix that, you've got to go back to Christ. Put it this way. Here's the formula for New Testament writing. You've got this problem. If you want to fix this problem, you've got to go back to Christ. That's always the answer. That's what he does here. Look in chapter two, verse six. He says there. Speaking from Christ, you have your mind, uh, have the mind of Christ among yourself, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. What an amazing thing to have said about an individual. But what we see here is we are appealing to Christ who a refused to hold on to his divine status. 
eternal God in spirit form only. No, I'm not going down there. What a mess. Could you imagine? No, he says, I'm going. I'm going. This is my part in the plan, and I'm going to save those people. I'm going to earth. And he goes to them, and he accepts human form. And he goes down to them, and he accepts the form of a human, which is a huge step down from eternal deity, you might imagine. And he dies, not only that, the death of a, of, of a slave and a criminal. So we've got God in heaven way up here. And then he comes down to physical form. He could have come as a rich, wealthy man. He didn't do that. He came in the form of a humble, poor person. And he didn't stop there. He went even further and humbled himself to the point of an embarrassing, shameful death that was full of pain on the cross. Jesus left us an example in that. He said, wherever you're starting, why don't you drop a few pegs? And once you get there, why don't you drop a few more pegs and get a little bit more humble? Humble yourselves a little bit more. He says, if I can do it, if I'm willing to leave that and go all the way to this shameful death on a cross, the creator being killed at the hands brutally by his creation. What we see, though, is God raised him up. God raised him up. Can you think of a verse that has anything to do with this? Christ is humbling himself, keeps on humbling himself. And when he's finally humbled himself, God is exalting him. He's lifting him up. What does God do to the proud? Doesn't he oppose the proud, but he exalts the humble. If you want to be exalted, you've got to humble yourself. Jesus is exalted and he wears a name that no one shares, a name above all name. And now and later, everyone will bow and praise his name. But he wears the title of exalted Christ. Isaiah 45 verse 23 says, by myself, I have sworn from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Did you know that Paul was quoting Isaiah when he mentioned this? But this is the word of Jehovah God back in Isaiah 45. And Jehovah God says, I have made this proclamation. And it's going to stand. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will give me allegiance. If we look at this, if we see our problems with one another, if we see our pride getting in the way of us teaching the lost or even asking them about their relationship in Christ and what they know about him, if we see our pride standing in the way, we need to look at this. And when we look at Philippians chapter two and we see the pathway that Christ took, that he can humble himself that much, well, then we know that there's not going to be any room for arrogance or for pride or for conceit or for quarrelsomeness. It's not going to be able to take root in our hearts. It just won't find a place. If we're imitating Christ and humbling ourselves, what we've got to do is imitate this path that Christ took, where we go down, 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 and God lifts us up, up, up. Look in chapter 3, verse 17. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He says, imitate me. Look at verse 8 in the same chapter. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul said, Christ left me an example of humbling himself. And you know what? All that stuff 
it doesn't matter. I'm humbling myself. In verse 10, that I may know of him and the power of his resurrection to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He wants to be just like Christ. So then in chapter 2 and verse 3, he can say, don't do anything from rivalry or conceit. Paul says, I had a life that was worth bragging about if you're into that sort of thing, but now it's just not worth it. It's nothing to brag about, nothing to be conceited of or, or consider something to be a, a rivalry. He goes on and he warns a little bit more about people who are not, uh, not going to Christ because of their selfishness and their quarreling. He says in chapter 3, you've got to look out for those who are mutilating the flesh. This, is, of course, is referring to Judaic teachers. Uh, go back in, in, in the book of Galatians, and for time's sake, we won't look at all of this. It's these Judaizing teachers who would come in and practice uh, circumcision in the Lord's church as though it were binding to be Christian. He says, be aware of, of those people. What that does is it puts restrictions on Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, he says, for, creed, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. Don't go back into the thing that was enslaving. Instead, look at Christ who is freedom. And he says, hold on to the new way. In chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not on Mount Sinai. He says, it's in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let go of the old way. Let go of your past. Let go of the past of other people, and come to Christ, meet him at the cross, and look forward to what is ahead in our heavenly citizenship. And finally, he says, focus on joy. We've talked about this already this week. But the life of a Christian brings about joy. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. And in chapter 1 and verse 4, he talks about how in every prayer, he makes prayers with joy for them. Joy characterizes the life of a Christian. If that doesn't characterize you, if you don't look at yourself and say that you are a joyful person because of the hope that you have, maybe your aim isn't where it needs to be. Maybe you're looking at things that are not as important as what Christ has set in front of us. He goes on to say that he had forgotten his shameful treatment. He mentions that in 1 Thessalonians 2. He tells us all to strain ahead and to look ahead and to keep on moving forward. And he says that Christ is going to complete what you have started. You can trust in him. No matter where you've come from and whatever your past is, that if you trust in him to see you through to the end. And in verse 9 of chapter 4, he says, Keep on thinking about all those good things from, from verse 8. He says, focus on that and remember that and live according to that. What we see in the letter to the Philippians, this heartfelt letter, letter we see uh, a great deal about the relationship that, that we can have with others and how much our relationship with others is determined by how well we focus on Christ and how good of a job we do at putting others above ourselves. That's at the heart of Christianity. Serving like our master, washing the feet of others like our master washed the feet of his servants. But that's the great struggle. That's the hard part. That's the thing we've got to keep working on. In truly exalting Christ, we make ourselves nothing. Nobody wants to be nothing. We all want to be something. But here's the part where you've got to take a leap of faith. You've got to understand that if you come to Christ and if you tell him, God, I am nothing He finishes that sentence and he says, without me, without the blood of Christ. And then he goes on to say, but with the blood of Christ, you are my beloved child and you're very special to me and you're very loved by me 
And I look forward to seeing you face to face one day. And if that's what you want to see, love your brothers here. Love the people in the world. Love Christ above all and humble yourselves because all of us are one in Christ Jesus. If the invitation is for you tonight because you're outside of Christ, never having named his name as your Lord and Savior, or repentant of your sins that you've been walking in, or having never been baptized into Christ for your sins to be washed away, to become a part of the family of God, you can do that tonight. There's water right behind me. I see it every time I step up here. It's nice and clear, and it is ready for you to be baptized in, to have your sins washed away. It's not the water, it's the the blood of Christ that, that acts upon you and your faith in Christ. But if you are a Christian and you realize that maybe some of your attitudes aren't what they need to be, don't think, well, it's just attitude problem. I'll just fix that. We need to remember that our attitudes can cause us to stumble. They can pull us away from our father if we're not careful. We need to fix those. If we can help you tonight to make your life right, come right now while we stand and sing.